This is a main hustle media podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Jackie O and you're listening to Militantly Mixed. Yo, this is Rashani from the single simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back. Listening to Militantly Mixed. I would like to acknowledge that the Militantly Mixed podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Karankawa people, and I wish to pay my respects to the people of that nation, both past and present. Hey y'all, welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your host, Charmaine, aka Mixed Girl Maine, the busiest mixed race bisexual polyamorous atheist comic book nerd cat mom mask making golf coast cosmos comic book co-owning asian american podcasters association's golden crane award-winning podcaster in this podcasting game this is episode 142 and my guest today is ayumi matsura rivero she is a phd student at the university of san diego and we had an amazing conversation uh this was one of those ones that i kind of like lived on a high for a couple of days after um we had a lot of crossover in the way we both kind of feel about our japanese identity Uh, we kind of teeter between sometimes feeling pride and shame (sighs) when you're mixed with a colonizer when you're mixed with an oppressor um you know sometimes we have some complicated feelings about that and and sometimes we don't know when we should be comfortably feeling pride and when we should be acknowledging the atrocities that maybe some of our people have committed. Um, sometimes that has to do with committing it against the other part that we're mixed with, sometimes not. But we we talked about it a little bit on this show and a little bit offline, and it was just really nice to to speak to someone that that I guess understood where I was coming from sometimes when I say like I, I there's aspects of Japanese culture that I absolutely love and that there's just times when I learn more and I, it hurts. <laughs> it hurts to learn, you know? Um, so it's really nice to speak to someone who, who got that. And um, beyond that, just the work that she's doing and the, and the different experiences she has had. Oh gosh, it was just a really good conversation. So I can't wait to share it with y'all. Uh, before I do that, I have a ton of things I need to tell you, but I can't give you another 20-minute intro. So I'm going to try to rush through it as much as possible and just not give a whole lot of details, which is normally my go-to. Usually I'll talk every single thing to death. So I'm going to try to... I'm going to try. I'm going to see what happens. First thing I want to do is to thank some newer and or older Patreon sponsors that have made changes to their Patreon. So shout out to Tiffany BP for joining Patreon sponsorship at the community builder level, which is $20 a month. Um, That's a huge contribution. And luckily I do have a number of people that do donate at that level. Um, But I'm always surprised every time it happens because it is a pretty large level uh, to commit to every month. And I really, really appreciate it. So thank you, Tiffany, uh, for joining. I know it's been a couple months since you you joined in, in July, uh, and I've just finally settled in enough to start doing this, but I, I just wanted to give you your shout out and tell you how much I appreciate you for joining our Patreon sponsorship at the $20 level. Um, also, shout out to Jesse for who increased their 
level to $25. Um, and to Danielle, who joined at the uh, social media shout out level, um, I'm very lucky that I receive the Patreon sponsorship that I do. Um, I, I hang out with a lot of other podcasters and it, within my podcasting circle, I'm one of the few that has a pretty substantial Patreon. Uh, we raise about $300 a month and it kind of goes somewhere between 275 to 330. Um, you know, there's, there's always fluctuation, but that I've been able to maintain near $300 a month, um, for the last couple of years has been extremely helpful and literally right now in particular, although there have been other times of financial difficulty uh, right now, I would not be able to put on the show uh, at all. If not for the Patreon sponsorship, um, I've taken a huge pay cut in moving to Houston. I don't take a salary from my uh, comic book shop yet because I can't afford to. And um, I'm only working part-time at the school that I used to work at in California. Um, so that's, you know, less than half of my salary. And um, my partner doesn't have a job yet either. So like, I literally cannot put on this show right now if it were up to me entirely and my own finances. So shout out to the Patreon sponsors. Without these 34 people who are currently sponsoring the show, um, this show would not exist literally not figuratively i would have to put it on an indefinite hiatus without them so thank you so much to our patreon sponsors if you would like to contribute to the show and help us keep going <laughs> like literally keep going right now uh you can go to patreon.com slash militantly mix that link is always in the show notes and you can contribute as low as a dollar a month to as anything you wish um and there's different reward levels depending on what you give at um Honestly, we have thousands of listeners of Militantly Mix, and if literally each one of you donated at a dollar, that would pay for everything that this show needs, including a producer and an editor and all the stuff that I have been aspiring to for the last three years but can't afford. Um, so I hope that you do consider that if you've been enjoying the show, especially if you've been enjoying it for years, that you consider um, contributing to the show because it does take a lot of work to put it on. Um, with me being a, a solo producer, I'm producing, I'm editing, I'm finding the people, I'm doing research, I'm advocating out in the world, I'm doing speech, um, speaking engagements and making more connections and and that takes up a lot of time and a lot of money and so i hope i hope i hope i hope, hope that if you do feel like you get something out of this show that you will consider donating even at a dollar a month because if enough of you did that this show could go pro so quickly um speaking of that patreon sponsors uh last week the patreon sponsors that um Support the show at over the $5 level are now receiving a new benefit, an exclusive benefit to the Patreon sponsors, which is a video version of the interviews that I conduct and that you will hear in the audio version of the show. Uh, they will now get access to it as a video. This is an exclusive benefit for the Patreon sponsors because, like I said, without them... The show does not exist. They pay to put on this show. So I want to be able to give them something um, exclusive to them. And in some cases, in most cases, I hope, but I'm going to say some just for safety, uh, they'll get it a week in advance of the episode you're hearing. So like today, the episode that you will be hearing, they got to see a week ago um, if they wanted to. And um, I haven't had a chance to talk to any of the Patreon sponsors yet to see if they enjoyed that benefit or if they would even like that benefit. Um, but I'm going to try it for next couple months and see what happens. If everybody loves it, I'm going to keep it going. And, um, and hopefully it'll feel like a real, real benefit uh, for what they've contributed to this show. 
All right. And the next thing is the Be Your Mixed Self fundraiser t-shirt. The Patreon sponsorship is the bread and butter of the show. Without that sponsorship, the show cannot go on. And every month, every dollar raised is spent producing this show, either in the editing software that I make payments on and the the hosting of the website, the hosting of the podcast so you can actually hear it. Everything that comes in goes out into the show in some way, shape or form. And the fundraiser that I do every year with the Be Your Mix SF t-shirt is how I elevate the show. So if there's something missing that I just can't afford to do but needs to happen, that's where the funds go from the annual fundraiser. So in 2019, I was able to buy better equipment, better microphone, um, uh, acoustic shield, things like that, that helped improve the quality of the show. In 2020, we were able to design the website because for the first two years of the show, we didn't even have a website. Um, we had a uh, under construction page. <laughs> but with the contributions of last year's fundraiser, I was able to get the website designed and put up and everything like that. So we've had a really good website, a decent website for the last year. Uh, let's see what else. Oh, yeah, I wasn't done talking about it, was I? So the Be Your Mix Self t shirt is um, an exclusive annual t shirt for fundraising. It is up online for a month. This time will be up until about October 26 before we pull it down. They're $25 no matter what size the t shirt is. And um, after the printer takes their cut, I get somewhere between 40 and 45% of the t shirt, depending on what size it is, cost. And that's what I use for the fundraiser. I'm really hoping this year we hit 100 shirts. I know we have enough listeners for that to be possible, but I also know that not everybody is willing to wear a t shirt that says ass on it. Um, but that is the motto of the show be your mixed ass self. And so I don't have an alternative for that. So if you would like to purchase the annual Be Your Mix Ass Self t-shirt, it is available now on the Militantly Mixed podcast website, militantlymixed.com. You can see it as soon as you go to the website now, or you can just go to the merch tab and it's on that site or it's on that page as well with all the other logo t-shirts and the, and the Mixed and Hella t-shirts that we have going on as well. Yeah. I never renew those images. The Each one is a, is a special shirt for each year. I'll never re-release them. So if you want this shirt, then now is the time to get it. Between now and October 26th, that is the only time that that shirt will be available. And anything else? Let's see. Fundraiser, Patreon sponsorship. Um, I do want to acknowledge, although I, I will not be able to go in depth on it on this episode, but I do want to acknowledge that this is um, Hispanic Heritage Month. It takes place between September 15th and October 15th. Uh, this is mostly for the U.S. audience, something that we do acknowledge here in the United States. Um, sometimes these uh, months are global, uh, but not all the time. So I just want to note to the international office, to the international audience that I, I know that I'm talking about something that's kind of exclusively United States American at the moment. Um, but this is where we celebrate the contributions and the accomplishments of Hispanic Americans or people of Latin American descent. It is referred to as Hispanic Heritage Month, although last year I think I did hyphenate it or slash it. I said, you know, Latinx slash Hispanic Heritage Month. Um, over the past year or so, I've been doing a lot of readings about this, and I'm not sure putting the X there is necessarily the move, because that's something that we do in the English language when something has an unknown or or you're trying to make something gender neutral, you put an X in there. And it's not something that happens in Spanish. And so a lot of what I've been reading lately has talked about how Latinx isn't necessarily appropriate or um, 
or that, you know, the alternative to that, if you're trying to be gender neutral, is to say Latine, uh, because that sounds more Spanish. So regardless of whether you identify as Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latine, or even Latinx, um, or maybe as a person from the Latin American diaspora, uh, this month celebrates your cultural heritage. And I would just like to honor you as our mixed cousin. Um, I, feel, I go back and forth on these um, cultural heritage months. Sometimes I... I don't know if it's the, if I'm comfortable celebrating or acknowledging them. And sometimes I feel like I have to absolutely have to use the opportunity, but I, I'm not going into depth on this episode about the distinction between Hispanic and Latino, Latina, Latine, but who did it really, really well recently is a code switch episode hosted by Jean Debbie. And it um, covers a lot of things about race and identity and, and all that kind of stuff. But this most recent episode, it's called who you call in Hispanic. They go really in depth into the origin of the terminology of Hispanic and a little bit about the difference between using Latinx or Latine um, as a gender neutral alternative to Latino Latina. First of all, they did it better than I ever could. So I highly recommend you check out that episode. I'll put a link to the show notes in that. Um, But I do want to acknowledge that it is something I'm reading about and thinking about and trying to educate myself on. But as a person that is not from the Latin American diaspora, I know it's not my call. (laughs) I'm not from the group that can make that decision. So I want to hear from y'all. If you're from that heritage group and you want to talk about it, I think my next live stream panel discussion, if I can get enough people that would like to talk about it, might be to discuss the difference between Hispanic and Latino, Latina, Latine, Latinx, um, and just see, you know, how the origins of the terms affect the way people feel like they want to identify, or just in general, what makes you feel more empowered in your identity. For me, an example is I identify as Black and not African American. I am more empowered by being a Black American than by being an African American. I do know that my African heritage comes from Gabon, but I'm not comfortable describing myself as Gabonese either because I have no direct cultural connection to Gabon. I just have an ethnic and ancestral connection. So for me, black is my term. Um, So whether or not you describe yourself as Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latine, or Latinx, I want to hear from you. I want to hear about it. And I I hope that um, Militantly Mixed feels like a place where you can feel represented and openly speak about how you identify in the same way that I do as the show host, as a black Japanese mixed person. or anybody else that has been a guest on this show. So again, it is Hispanic Heritage Month. That is what the month is called. Uh, Whether or not it needs to be adjusted is a conversation I think is actively happening right now in the Latin American diaspora. Uh, So try to pay attention to that, read up on it, and just learn whether you're from the diaspora or not. What goes into these discussions about what to name things when people's ethnicity and identity are at stake in how someone chooses to name it? And I think that is all of the major things I wanted to hit on. It's not as short as I was hoping, but it's not as long as I could have gone. So I think I think I'm going to call that one a win. So let's get into this week's episode. As I said at the top of the show, my guest today is Ayumi Matsura Rivero, and she is a PhD student in sociology uh, doing her own mixed race study with sort of a 
slant towards Black and Asian identity, mixed identity, uh, for the University of San Diego. And we talk a little bit about the difficulties for folks that are doing mixed race studies in academia. Um, For a lot of cases, there's not a lot of resources. And a lot of the studying that you're doing is on your own, whether it is literally creating a study in which you interview people from those different groups or or sending out questionnaires or something like that to get the statistical information that you need to get the anecdotal information you need. Um, you're almost entirely having to do that on your own with very little support. So I applaud anybody who's doing mixed race studies at high levels of education right now, because, um, you're creating the foundation of what future people, future students and future PhD candidates will be able to base their work on as well. So I'm, I just really wanted to say that, take a moment to say that because I think it's really good work and really important work. And I'm, I'm really grateful to anybody who's out there doing it. I know I've highlighted a few studies throughout the course of this show, and I'm willing to do that to other people that are doing this kind of work. Um, so if you are doing academic work, work in mixedness and you need access to people to participate in your studies, uh, please reach out to me uh, through the email charmaine at militantlymixed.com and uh, let me know how we can communicate to the audience the best way that would work to get participants because this is a mixed race audience. And so hopefully in that you will be able to find um, the people that you need, or at least some of the people that you need for your studies. Um, But without further ado, Let's get back to Ayumi. Please join me in welcoming our latest cousin to the Militantly Mixed family, Ayumi Matsuda Rivera. This episode, I am joined by Ayumi Matsuda Rivero. Did I say the Rivero? Yep, uh, you got Rivero. it. Rivero. <laughs> and we, um, so I I heard about you through another guest on the show, um, mm-hmm. actually Mona Lisa, uh, who has a YouTube channel on, um, you know, natural skincare products and things like that for mixed folks uh, and her own personal experience. And she mentioned you and that's kind of how I became aware of you. Um, and then also became aware of you through uh, your work that you're doing in your PhD program, correct? Yes. Yeah. All right. So why don't you introduce yourself uh, to the audience and lay it out a little bit for folks and then we'll get into it. Sure. So uh, my name is Ayumi. I'm. Uh, I'll, I'll start off with like my combination of mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm Venezuelan Japanese, um, and uh, uh, I'm I'm a PhD student right now at the University of California in San Diego, and uh, I'm doing research primarily on mixed race folks. And uh, you know, I'm I'm really excited to be here and kind of get into this. <laughs> uh, I'm excited that I'm now encountering so many more people that are doing academic work in mixedness. Uh, of course, throughout most of my life, that was a very rare thing. There was only a few people that were kind of known for doing it. Um, and honestly, under pressure right now, the only name that pops in my head is Naomi Zach. 
um, from around the 90s that was that was specifically doing work about about mixed race identity. And um, so now to be able to encounter so many more people that are actually doing work like that, whether it comes from a personal space or just from the lack, I'm, I'm really excited. So why don't you talk a little bit about what it was that made you want to pursue that in your education? And then we'll talk a little bit more about you. Sure. So, um, you know, I initially wasn't really thinking about going into sociology. Um, my undergraduate degree was in like political science, but um, I've always kind of had these questions about mixedness. Like I haven't really, I've always kind of felt like, you know, folks like us are really interesting and in that there isn't enough conversation about it. Um, and I was trying to find stuff on it. And it didn't seem like there were a few like uh, articles you could find on like Medium or like Remezcla and all these things. Um, so I decided to, to go into this PhD program because I was like, well, if nobody's going to do it, I'll try. I'll try and research this. And so kind of selfishly, it started off because I wanted to kind of figure out more or, or learn about people like me because I didn't see myself really reflected in anything. Like we see like biracial folks, like um, white black or like white Asian, but you know, like Latino Asians, I, the only ones I knew growing up were like my sister. Um, right. And so, yeah, yeah. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of selfish. I'm going to do this research because nobody else is doing it. So that's kind of my um, uh, justification. I love that you said that you're selfish because that's also how I explained why I created the show. Um, and like three years ago, well, five years ago when I wanted to do the show, it still took me another two years until I actually did it. I was like, I selfishly just want to collect more mixed people in my life. I grew up very mixed. Both of my parents are biracial. All of my cousins are biracial. We lived in the same house, some of me and my cousins. And so I went from having a very mixed life to a very non-mixed life. And I was just like, where are all of us? Like, in my in my upbringing seemed like it was a very common thing but when i get into the world i didn't meet as many people um in the wild i guess and so it was it was just a way of like pokemoning mixed folks <laughs> to start the show um and i felt like it was a selfish move but in the end um this selfish move that we've done will have benefits to other mixed folks um which i have definitely seen in the course of my show but um in the course of your your work, I'm sure you're going to see, you're going to see versions of that as well. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the um, Asian Latina experience that, that you have, or, or actually before we do that, you do, do you use Latina? What, what is the word that you use for your, your uh, Latin American heritage? Uh, I say Latina. Latina. Okay. Yeah. Um, that one is, I'm still working on that one since it doesn't come from my own experience. I want to be aware of how it's used when it's used um and i know that i have my version of what i've learned but i want to make sure that i know it for for every individual person um so with your with your uh asian latina experience what what is that like what did that mean for you when you were growing up besides just you and your sister were the only two that you knew yeah so i mean i think that's really interesting because i grew up outside the u.s I lived in Brazil for a little while, and then I also lived in the Philippines. And so during that time, it wasn't really like a big deal, at least in Brazil. Like it's common, like there's a massive like Japanese diaspora there. Right. And so like that was that was never really like a major thing. And like growing up, I was like, yeah, I'm half Venezuelan, half Japanese. And like I eat this food and I do that and I have these traditions. Um, 
And then also in the Philippines, like it's pretty common to like meet uh, mixed Japanese folks. Um, so again, like it was just like, it was a non-issue. Like my friends were various kinds of like Asian um, and we just kind of like, like, like a pan-Asian kind of like identity. Um, and then when I moved to the U.S., that's where it was like, oh, <laughs> this has become an issue because other people are really struggling to comprehend this. Right. And so, you know, it was, I think for, for a long time, I'm, I mean, I've always been kind of proud of being mixed. I've been proud of being Venezuelan. Um, and then the Japanese side is a little bit more complicated, but I, I, you know, I've always understood and felt pride in being mixed. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Um, since we're both mixed Japanese, I think we can kind of speak on on that experience together, which I, I get to do occasionally on the show, but it's it's not often. Um, I think specifically our Asian heritage being Japanese is unique because mm-hmm. it is such not only just that it is a very homogenous nation, but that they remain fairly closed off to mixedness and other ethnic groups, even though they have a very nationalistic identity. Mm-hmm. The second you're brown <laughs> or you're not coding correctly yeah. as a real Japanese, um, we become very affected by that. And in, in a greater degree, because we both come from different brown heritages versus uh, Asians, you know, white mm-hmm. Japanese, um, the experience that my mother had as a white Japanese in Japan is a lot different than the experience that I would ever have as a black Japanese um, Definitely. in Japan. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's, that's interesting. So th- this is actually one thing that I, I'm glad to be talking to you about too, because here in the States, it wasn't very common to see um, Asian mixes with any kind of uh, Mexican, Puerto Rican, Latin American, um, where I grew up, it was, that was the, the, the groups that we had. We had mostly Puerto Rican and Mexican um, people where we, we lived or Spanish speaking people who come from Spanish speaking nations and stuff like that. So that wasn't a very common thing to see that. Mm-hmm. So when I started to find out like, hey, there's this huge Japanese diaspora in South America and Colombia is very heavily mixed and Peru is very heavily mixed in Brazil. Um, and finding out that at the time that I had discovered this, that the Peruvian president had a Japanese last name and was like mixed um, Japanese uh, Peruvian, I was I was really surprised. So, but when you're down there, it's just normal. People wouldn't even necessarily be surprised that that you're this way, right? Uh, is it? Well, I guess let me ask more specifically. Mm-hmm. I imagine that there are hierarchies also in what is the approved mix versus non-approved mix the way that it is here in the States. When we think about mix here in the States, people naturally gravitate towards black and white biracials. And then after that, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, okay, you can be all these other things as long as you're mixed with white. Yeah. But you yeah. don't often get a whole lot of, um, I want to say like a sanctioned mixed folks that are, that are mixed with uh, black or, or other brown um, in there. But how, how was it? for besides your pan Asian group of mixed folks, what is the Mm -hmm. culture surrounding you saying about your mix? Yeah. So I think that, um, I mean, when I lived in Brazil, I was like pretty, like I was like a little kid. Um, so I can't really speak on like broader society, but like looking back, because I have done a little bit of research in terms of like Brazil. Um, I mean, the, the Japanese folks there have a really difficult history, especially, um, during World War II. And it's only kind of recently that like 
they are seen as the model minority, which is interesting. Um, and so like that doesn't seem to escape, um, you know, the Western hemisphere. It seems like if you're if you're part yeah. Japanese, then you're like considered automatically to be smarter, more equipped, um, which poses its own problems. But um, is that I can in addition, like over other Asians as well, like specifically the Japanese Asians were the model minority or all Asians? Yeah, so I think that like specifically, at least in like Peru and Brazil, it's the the Japanese. There is like a Chinese population, and I know in like the Caribbean, there's like um, folks who came from India. Um, but I think that like there's also that really terrible stereotype where any Asian in Latin America is called Chino, mm-hmm. even though they're not Chinese. They're you know. And I think even like the president of Peru was called like, or he he adopted this thing where it's like, yeah, I just soy chino, and I'm like, Ooh. I mean, he's got he's got his own problems, but um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I can't say I I um, I I vouch for him, mm. but like in the Philippines, like you know, based on like Japanese history of like imperialism there, I kind of that's where I started feeling. I don't want to say uncomfortable, but like you really have to reckon with the histories of, of your ancestors and kind of what they've done. Yeah. And so I think it was more, I mean, it was certainly more common in the Philippines to see half Japanese people and kind of that. Um, but it was like, I remember we went to, um, there was like a field trip and they took us to this, I guess, like little town or something um, that was um, like in big by the Japanese during World War II and they would like show us around and um, there was a I remember this super clearly because I remember it was like holy shit um, they took us into inside this church and they said um, like the Japanese like army would put um, like corpses of like Filipinos and, and people in, in this church and pile them up and so and some Filipinos would actually hide under these these corpses, but the Japanese knew this and would leave like um, glasses of water around these these piles. And um, if if the water levels went down, they just started like shooting. And it was a truly horrific, like a thirteen year old like learning about this. Yeah. I was like, oh my god, I I am proud of being mixed, and. I also need to know that like that comes with its like caveats. Mm-hmm. Like you can't just be blatantly um, proud and you have to like learn the histories in order to kind of do it justice, if right. that makes sense. It's really complicated when your mix involves a colonizer or an imperialist or an oppressor. Um, mm-hmm. And and to to try to say like we skirt this line between being proud of our mix and what that means in terms of our look and being proud mm-hmm. of our mix in terms of the cultural richness of where we come from. But then mm-hmm. also, yes, absolutely. Re- remembering the past or learning the past if we just don't know, which I've, I've had to experience a few times throughout this show. Um, yeah. Mostly with the Japanese side, the white side is pretty much everybody gets it, <laughs> you know? It's like, like, <laughs> yeah. The yeah, white yeah. Side That's is the British most common. And, like British, British. So like, colonizer 100%. But with the Japanese to 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 acknowledge um, the atrocities that Japan committed across Asia. um, I mean, it's also interesting because like the Japanese, at least in like the U.S., have a 
very different history, like with internment camps. And so like truly depending on where you are in the world, certain things are highlighted. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, that's also just something that I've been thinking about pretty recently. Yeah, that's interesting because when I when I lived in L.A., I used to go to the Janum a lot, which was a Japanese-American um, national museum. And they would have a they actually had quite a bit of programming for mixed people, which I was so surprised at when I when I got there and I participated in a, in a bunch of it. And but what I found is that if I interacted with anybody in the audience, it would be, are you internment Japanese? Or are you different? You know, mm. and it was it was very much that. Like, yeah, I think Janum because it was the Japanese American National Museum, it was very focused more on that experience of being um, an internment era descendant or something like that uh, versus Definitely. someone like me, which would be what I refer to as like, I guess the third generation of the Warbride era in which um, mm-hmm. my, you know, my grandmother was born during World War II. She married a white man during the Korean War and came to America. So. So mm-hmm. um, it, we're different <laughs> from the Japanese that, yeah. that were for, that were already existing here. And even the way that my grandmother approaches other Japanese people is different depending on what kind of Japanese they are. Um, and that that is something I don't have in any other of my my heritage. You know, no, no English person comes up to you and you're like, are you, you know, colony yeah. time or post-colony <laughs> time? You know, like this is yeah, the yeah, thing yeah. That, that, that happens. So it, it is a really unique thing to Japan, I think, specifically um, across yeah. all of the Asian diaspora. Um, and there's times like you, you mentioned shame earlier. There's times when I didn't know to have a little shame. I hate to Mm -hmm. say it that way, but like Mm -hmm. just walking into space and be like, I'm part Japanese, we're Asian too, we're together. And then the whole room is like, you yeah they kind of just like all of us, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and understanding that that's why, or that that may have played into why I wasn't always welcome, both as a mixed Asian, but also Mm -hmm. specifically Mm -hmm. a Japanese in um, predominantly like group Asian spaces. Um, you know, college clubs and things like that, Uh, which was tough. It was was really tough. And and so because of that, well, maybe not just because of that, but also because of the way I was raised, I leaned a lot more heavily into my black side and my blackness. Um, And then being apologetic for being as yellow (laughs) as I was in those spaces. Like, I promise I'm black. I know. Look at this face. I get it. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you have experiences like that where if you move around in different parts of the world, since you have lived in Brazil and Philippines and the United States, yeah, are you coded differently depending on where you live? Well, uh, so at least in the Philippines, people always just thought I was Filipino. Mm-hmm. Um, or whenever I was like in like Southeast Asia, I was just one of one of them. I was, you know, I got like, are you Malaysian? Are you like Filipino? Um, so it was like it was in a way very comforting because um you know i i don't have the same experiences by by culture and heritage but like the way that i was generally treated was the same as everybody else and so that's something that i took for granted and especially when i came to the us when i was like 14 that was a shock um because i was so used to like we had like two white kids in my school in the philippines and all of a sudden it's, it's completely flipped and um, people just didn't know what to do with me. And I got, again, like Hawaiian, Filipino, um, what else? People just never guessed the right mix. Right. And I mean, there were, there were a few things that were kind of offensive that came up, but like 
yeah, most people just didn't know what to do with me. And, and it was, it made them uneasy until they figured it out. They were like, no, no, but what are you like trying to like place me within like, I guess like a hierarchy. Um, so that was like, I guess coded, coded like very differently between the US and like the rest of the world, right. the rest of the world in Asia. I blend in, I can, except for in Japan. That's different. different. Japan is something else. We talked about that separately. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> in Japan, it's like, oh, you're a Hafu. And I'm like, yeah, I guess, yeah. Um, How do you feel about words like that? Because I remember when Hafu, when I first started hearing Hafu, I was like, oh, look at them trying to make an effort to include us. And now mm -hmm. when I hear it, I, it depends on the speaker of how yeah. we feel. Um, if it is a person who identifies as Hafu, of course, I'm like, that's your term? Good, we're going. Um, mm -hmm. But sometimes when I have been asked by a Japanese person if I'm Hafu, it, I can feel it in the same way that I feel it when a white person says, but where are you really from? Yeah. I, I think, again, like if it's another like Hafu, no big deal. Um, even within the U.S., if it's like somebody of like, typically it's somebody of Asian descent. I've never had a white person Absolutely. be like, "Are you a Hafu?" But um, if it's like so, you know, Unless Japanese American, an Asian person, yeah, then it's like, oh, okay. Oh, it's like, oh, my kids are Hafu. Yeah, exactly. Um, but like in Japan, I, I mean, I have my, I have a very complicated history with, with that side, and um, I was kind of resentful of this Hafu label because I felt like it placed a certain expectation on me to really be um, as Japanese as I can. Of course, there's a limit because I'm not fully Japanese, but it was like, sure. oh, you're a Hafu. You must speak Japanese. You have to do these things. You have to do that. You have to have these mannerisms. And it was exhausting. And so I I kind of just completely um, rejected that label mm. and decided to go with foreigner, gaijin. Um, oh, really? That was, yeah, that was pretty liberating. Um, I know that it has its own problems, but mm. there's something just so like, I don't know, the Hafu label just doesn't sit right with me. Exactly, exactly. Right. Yeah, um, so I've talked about this with other people too, about how some complicated terms are less complicated when, when you choose it versus others. Yeah. Um, an example of which is there are times when I do refer to myself as yellow, but not in a way that I view as problematic and I don't use it across the board. So I'm not going to go mm -hmm. and be like, I'm black and yellow. But I'll mm -hmm. say like the experience of watching Shang-Chi with this, you know, with, you know, getting to see, you know, 60 feet tall, yellow people, that, that is the way that I'm, yeah. I'm saying that in that moment, that was a, a, a positive for me. Yeah. That being yeah. said, other people using it, depending on how they're using it and who they are, totally different experience. Um, but Gaiji, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, because for, well, for the audience who, who isn't Japanese or doesn't know, um, mm -hmm. foreigner can be tantamount to, an offensive term, a derogatory term in Japan. And there's literal places that say, you know, no gaijin allowed, essentially. Um, mm -hmm. and, and there's certain like restaurants and you can't frequent because they really want to keep certain aspects of, of Japan sacred. Um, yeah. And then, then you wonder, like, if I'm born there or if I have a passport from there, do I have that right? Because then they look at me and, mm -hmm. you know, and like you said, you know, with language, my Japanese. That's a big one. That's a big one. Like I have a Japanese passport, um, but there's just something about um, 
I don't feel Japanese. I can feel Japanese American, but I don't feel Japanese. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I have tattoos. My, I have like, my ears are stretched. I'm queer. Like all of these things that make me very non-Japanese. Right. And so oftentimes when I'm in Japan, I feel like the only Japanese thing about me is my name. And that sometimes is very challenging because mm. I say my name, Matsuda Ayumi, and immediately people are like, oh, okay, like so you sense. you are part Japanese. How good are you at being part Japanese? And so that is oh kind of irritating gosh, and exhausting. Sense. How good at you are be- at being part Japanese? Like that hits so hard. <laughs> 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 oh my gosh, yeah, because I like I guess I get I don't get to speak that often um, to other uh, Japanese that have this same experience. Um, yeah, that's why. Yeah, it is. It, it becomes a test. And I, I wonder. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm a bit of a novelty because I don't have mm-hmm. a Japanese name and I wasn't even gifted like a Japanese middle name. Mm-hmm. So sometimes if I'm in a space, I will choose to adopt my great grandmother's last name just just to test it, just to mm-hmm. see what's going to happen. But instantly an expectation of like, you know, how good is your Japanese? And, you know, I'll, uh, I have at home Japanese. I have, I have, uh, anime Japanese. I, I don't have, yeah. I can't hold a conversation. I can say mm-hmm. a couple of sentences really well and it gets people enough to give me the compliment for which mm-hmm. I have to back down and say, Oh no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not that good. Um, and then, and then in terms of just how my physical mannerisms start to come into play, and that's from observation, just being around my grandma and things like that. Um, I might get complimented on things like that. Mm-hmm. But then I eventually reveal my otherness, and it's like, boom! Oh yeah, yeah, I knew you weren't. I, I, I yeah. knew this was going to happen. <laughs> eventually, mm-hmm. it's going to be a disappointment. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a. Whole I have thing. like I remember. So I recently found out about this. So my, I mean, my dad's the first one to ever leave Japan, ever marry a non-Japanese, and. Um, uh, we asked my grandfather, like, how did you feel about him bringing home like a Venezuelan woman? And um, my grandfather was like, well, I didn't know what she was going to look like. I, I didn't know if she was going to be like black. I didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. So it was I was like, oh, OK. So I guess if like my mom was like darker, if like, you know, then there would be kind of a problem. So I feel like I kind of straddle both these lines because I'm not. I'm not Asian, I'm not white, but I'm also not like, I'm not black. So it's like, I'm in this in-between brown where it's like, oh, I guess you're okay, kind of. Um, But it still codes that it is an other. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure, absolutely, for sure. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a that that was definitely a thing because the when my mother was first pregnant, um, part of it was that she was a teen mother. So you're already kicked out mm. of the family for that. Um, then my grandfather had seen my mother kissing my father on the street corner down a couple blocks away. And that's how they found out I was going to be black. <laughs> um, and so the only reason why we were kind of let back into the family is because my youngest aunt had asked, who was 13 at the time, asked my grandmother to take her to come and see me. And so it was kind of a way, I believe, my aunt was trying to get my grandmother to see how cute I was and just bring me back, you know, just bring us back into the family. Yeah. Because of how disownment works in Japanese, it's pretty permanent. No. <laughs> um, and uh, I guess, luckily, 
in that sense. I was cute and I was fair skinned. Um, yeah. And they put a hat on me, which is my grandmother's kryptonite, a baby in a hat. And um, and boom, I was part of the family. But there was this constant question as I got older, if I would tan during the summer and things like that, mm. you know, like how dark can she get? Um, yeah. You know, ends up being a concern. And I know that my grandmother loves me, but I know that she has complicated feelings about me as mm-hmm. as a black uh, Japanese person. And, and, and even to the degree of who we could tell we were related a lot of times I was the friends of I was the child of a friend Mm. if we ran into people which has its own bit of therapy bad baggage yeah you know that kind of stuff um so I mean but that's that's interesting though right because you were like I guess on the opposite end I was shown off I was the um different in Japan my my grandparent in Japan they were like look at my Hafu granddaughter, look at this, you know, like I was a spectacle, like me and my sister. So it's, it is that othering, but in a way they tried to make it a positive thing. Yeah. We'd be like, look at her. She speaks English. She speaks Japanese. Like I'm related to this. So it's, it's, I have, I mean, it's complicated, right? I have seen that. Like when my married in uncle who's Spanish, um, Mm -hmm. he was tall. So they like to show him off to the other Japanese because of how tall he was. Look at my granddaughter's husband. He's so tall. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've seen a version of that. But with me, it was we were hidden mm. uh, because they were because black people would walk up to us and know we were black. And my grandma mm-hmm. would always be like, what just happened? And I was like, mm-hmm. they were just letting me know that they knew. <laughs> yeah. You know? And then it was the how did they know? Mm-hmm. I, they can tell because of my face. Can everybody mm-hmm. tell? You know, yeah. No, only black people can tell. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, white people might be like, "What are you?" But black, people, yeah, you're black, and that's that was the difference for my grandmother. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. But again, that's the difference between like my grandmother being in a very isolated community in the states with just a handful of Japanese people versus, you know, you going back home. Yeah. Yeah. And and it definitely. Being, because you have two ways of going to Japan. You can either like disown and it's a public thing where everybody knows you have to scorn this member of the family or mm-hmm. it is a show off type of thing. Yeah. There's no middle um, mm-hmm. that I've that I've ever heard of. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm sure it's possible, but it's it always have seemed to be kind of one or the other. Um, yeah. That's interesting. So how like I imagine the culture shift between the states and um, everywhere else that you have lived was pretty significant, but you went from Brazil to Philippines and then Philippines to the States. Yeah, that's correct. So with the, with your time in the Philippines, were you, in addition to like Japanese imperialism, that has definitely in, in affected the Philippines, um, American imperialism is happening as well. So what, were you prepared at all for what was going to happen to you when you got here a little bit or we mostly in the space in which Japan had a bigger impact on the Philippines. It was, I mean, it was, it was weird because I went to an international school. So I was taught U.S. history. Oh, okay. I was taught parts of U.S. history, but mostly it was like a global, like world history of like, these were the, you know, civilizations of, of Latin America, of Asia, of Africa, um, bits and pieces. So really coming to the U.S. was, kind of the first time I had to grapple with with these kind of like you know the imperialist nature of the of the U.S. and like I have kind of complicated feelings with that as well because Mm -hmm. I'm I'm Venezuelan 
And um, I have seen, I have family still there. I have family that has left and it's, it's challenging. Um, and I often see, of course, the U.S. has a history of imperialism. There's no way I'm denying that. However, when people start throwing it um, with the Venezuelan case saying, that's U.S. imperialism trying to overthrow the government. To me, that approach is something that makes me very uncomfortable because in that way, you're taking away the agency of the Venezuelan people, right? You're kind of assuming that these folks are incapable of choosing, you know, the, the trajectory of their country. Right. And so, you know, in U.S. imperialism, you can point to like the Middle East, you can point to like other parts of Latin America as well but it's never clear cut. And um, I don't know, I, I, it's, it's a thing that I'm still grappling with um, because there no, without a doubt, the U S has caused a lot, a lot of problems throughout the world. Um, But, you know, when you start throwing it around for situations that may not necessarily be that simple, um, that's where it gets kind of problematic for me. I mean, I imagine there's pros and cons in every aspect of this, you know, like in terms of cultural trade, there could be some positives in terms of maybe the freeing of or the liberation of people who just who maybe did need support. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. What you lose also happens because of the cultural exchange. You can lose some aspect. And then and then, of course, American dominance, if that ends up being the case, like Mm-hmm. like you can point to in the Middle East and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's like, and I think as mixed people, this is why I hate terms where people are just like, you know, the mixed people are going to be the ones to save everybody because like, we, oh, you know, that kind of, I hate that. Um, yeah. Because it's like my whole day from, from the beginning of the day to the end of the day, I could have conflicts related to my Britishness, my Japanese-ness, my Americanness, my black Americanness mm-hmm. specifically. Yeah. You know, like there's so many ways in which I can get torn apart um, back and forth, all depending on how someone engages with me or how I'm feeling yeah. about myself. And then on top of it, I if I ever get these opportunities to go back to, to my home countries, am I even a part of that? Like I can sit here with all this pride and then go there and um, I'm not British enough and I'm not Japanese enough and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's like, there's no good way to try to describe this. And this is why when you mentioned earlier about skirting the lines between just like having pride um, being like appropriately shameful, you mm-hmm. know, like mm-hmm. appropriately, like yeah, I know there's some things. Um, yeah, you know that that is tough, and I think it gets even elevated when you come from a culture that does have shame as part of um, the way it disciplines. Um, yes, which Japanese definitely. Oh yeah. Have, oh yeah. You know, in a big bad way, um, disappointment. I'll take like honestly, there was times in my life when I'd be like, I'll take a beating over disappointment any day. It's like the disappointment could be so like ancestral. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Your ancestors get called into the 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 whole parts of the disappointment. It can be really tough. Um, okay, so now like you've lived in the states predominantly, I guess. In yeah, since you've been fourteen. Yeah. Um, when did you? This is this is possibly a good question. When did you realize you were mixed? Hmm. I think that I have this very distinct memory where for the first time my mixedness was kind of used against me mm-hmm. because it, it 
prior to the U.S., it was always like, oh, yeah, you know, she speaks a- or Spanish and like a little bit of Japanese, like no big deal. Like, you know, that's kind of it was normal. And then in the U.S., I remember I was in class one time and I had a, a girl, a, cl- a classmate of mine who said that, um, you know, when I did well in class, it was because I am Asian and Japanese. Mm-hmm. And when I didn't or if I started dozing off. That was the lazy Hispanic in me. Right. And that, I mean, you know, that that's over like 10 years now that, that that was said to me. And I just still remember feeling so like taken aback right. because it's like, I don't, I don't choose to be, I don't choose to be Venezuelan today. And then I don't choose to be Japanese another day. Like I'm both. So you're, you're saying that like, it was, yeah. it was just such a weird experience. It'd be like, dial. It'd be like oh, t- test day. Let's make sure that I got my, yeah. Uh, you're not the first person who has a, basically that exact same, you know, mm-hmm. if you excel in X, you are because of this. And if you excel in this, it's because of this. Or if you do poorly, um, it's come up several, several times on the show. Uh, mm-hmm. Even to the degree that because we've had to internalize some of this to that, even sometimes we've preempted it for people too. Mm-hmm. I, I, have, mm-hmm. I have vivid memories of telling people I'm not a math Asian. Just yeah. like, just so we know, like in a group, yeah. group assignment or something like that, yeah. like, you know, they pick me and I'm like, just so you know, I'm not a math Asian because yeah. of what has been said, the kinds of things that have been said to me in times that like, obviously I wouldn't say something like that now, but when you're a kid mm-hmm. and you have these people that hit you with these random races, it's like, it's like self-defense, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's like, I remember I'm, I, I kind of am, I'm embarrassed about it now, but like, I didn't have any other tools. Mm-hmm. I do remember kind of adopting that and being like, oh, you know, like um, I, you know, the Asian side of me is like coming out today and I can like, I'm feeling on top Absolutely. of it. <laughs> um, or it's like, I'm talking, I'm like, oh shit, I got like a C minus on a test. I'm like, oh, you know, the Hispanic side. Um, and I, the, the choice of language, Hispanic, mm-hmm. It was very deliberate for me in high school. Oh, really? um, yeah. Because of so, what people thought when they heard Hispanic versus Latino, Latina. Yeah. And I do remember like there were some stupid like white boys or something who said um, who are using Latina in a very like sexualized manner. Mm-hmm. And that was very uncomfortable for me. And so I was like, I'm I'm just going to stick with Hispanic. Oh, uh, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. So I just kind of kind of left it at that so it's 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 complicated right and i've been saying that a lot but there's like it just is honestly like it could have been the motto of this show if not for be or mix that so um <laughs> just be like Middleton and mix it's complicated uh, because yeah we do like uh, we both not just because of what we've internalized uh, or what we've used as self-defense but um but yeah, sometimes what's happening on the outside of us is so gross that we don't have anything else but to try to deny. I mean, mm-hmm. like you, I've I've had experiences like that where people have straight up found out I was Japanese and then asked if I'm a proper Japanese wife. Mm, like, what yeah. the fuck does that mean? Like, you know, like, you know, it's yeah. just, there's so many ways in which someone can turn something gross. And, and then it makes you feel like, should I even try to enjoy this cult, you know, the cultural side of where I come from. I, I understand exactly. um, the complication of 
politically, racially, ethically, you know, all that. I get that those are at play, but sometimes it is just about me being super excited about this food I'm eating or, you know, Mm -hmm. going to Cherry Blossom every year in San Francisco and waiting for the big drum with the half naked man jumping up and down on it, you know, like being like, this is my culture and I'm excited about this thing. Um, Yeah, I, (laughs) People are so gross. I hate, I hate the world. I hate the world sometimes. Um, but, but it is, uh, and with you having, so with you coming from different cultures and not only that moving around the world and, and having so many different languages at play as well, you're getting mm-hmm. hit probably constantly with whether or not you perform correctly as Venezuelan, as Japanese, as American mm-hmm. even. Um, yeah. And then to just have to, at some point, decide to cut it and be like, you know what, I'm not, I can't. And that's a hard thing to do. Honestly, I can't say for sure, even in all of my pro-mixedness and being able to talk openly about being mixed throughout my entire life, I still think it was the show that was the difference between me being able to stop those sort of self-defense mechanisms. Um which I fell at on occasion. I still do. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a knee jerk. Like you've been trained yeah. to do this kind of yeah. stuff. And I have caught myself in the last year saying I'm, I'm feeling very jacked. I had a hashtag I used to use. Like when we talk about not being a, proud of a moment, I used to have uh-huh. a, a hashtag of like, um, like half, half white girl problems whenever I like would speak to a manager, <laughs> you know? And being just yeah. like, you know, because I lived in a predominantly white space and things like that. And and there would just be things that would happen that I wouldn't I, I would just know in my bones that it was because I was brown. And so then I yeah. would turn on that, you know, Karen manager speak and and um and then relay it to people in Facebook or something like that and add that hashtag. And mm-hmm. like every now and then it pops up in my Facebook memories and I'm just like, oh. You're like, oh God. You know, why? But yeah. but again, like we didn't have any other tools and it takes having these conversations to be able to learn yeah. new ways of talking about it or even how it impacts other people when when you're when you're talking about how it affects you mm-hmm. and how it can impact other people, which is why um on this show, like be your mixed ass self popped up as my slogan was me basically yelling at a guest about how apologetic she was <laughs> in yeah. ownership of her identity. And I was just like, just be your mix up. So, I mean, not yet, not, not berating her, but just, and just like, I want you to feel comfortable so bad, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, sometimes that, sometimes that does happen. Um, in your program, I assume there's a lot of sort of independent study that you're going to, you're having to approach because of some of these, um, groundworks and foundations aren't available to you yeah definitely um do you feel that you have to show is it a harder aspect than like other people that are in this sort of sociology thing whatever they're choosing to study or maybe you don't even know because (laughs) i i want to be very careful about how i phrase this you know everybody studies something very niche in a PhD program Mm -hmm. and people get varying degrees of support based on the faculty, based on like the, the program resources. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I have to say that it's been quite challenging to be able to get the support to study this, this, um, you know, mixed race kind of um, topic. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, it's challenging because it, it does feel very isolating. But I think that like, you know, speaking to folks this summer, because I spent the summer doing research, I spent the summer interviewing people, it really like, like reinvigorated me because um, it's very easy to be made to feel like what you're studying is not really interesting or Mm. scholarly or um, like there's an actual like theoretical contribution you can make to like the literature. Um, So yeah, it is... I don't know if that answers your question. I want no, to, I just want to be very careful. No, yeah. And I, I understand why you would even have to, um, but, but it does. And I think for any of us that are sort of the first ones or the early ones to, to kind of go into a thing when we don't have foundation, when we don't have people to look to, um, mm-hmm. part of that is the challenge because of how isolating it is and how much extra work it will be for us. But also part of that is learning even how to engage with people who don't know how to engage with us. And I imagine that is a big part of, of what (laughs) is happening too, because if, if it, if it's not from their experience, it's just a lot easier to not participate and not help. Um, Yeah. Or even it's like to know where to help, I guess. It's it's like, I don't know how to, how I can justify how do I justify this research if you just don't care about mixed people in general? Like Mm -hmm. I have to then jump through these hoops to be like, well, you know, the, there's a theoretical gap here and, you know, people assume this, but therefore I'm going to do this research to try and like, you know, prove this wrong or include more information here. Mm -hmm. And for some people, that's just not a worthwhile field of study. And I, I, it's like, I can't, I can't tell you why you have to care. Like, I can't explain to you that you should care about people who don't look like you. Yeah. Um, and you have but to again, do that's the my research job. to get the evidence to support why you need to do the research. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's ridiculous. But um, I, I hope that they're, they're out it, especially now that there are more opportunities like the, the mix, um, the Midwest mix conference. I see you're wearing a shirt right now. Um, yeah. uh, you know, that there are these there are places. There's also been some studies in the UK, um, mixed race studies, and, and they, they have their conferences as well that will have more opportunities. But it's still it doesn't mean that the work is any less like, you know, there's mm-hmm. still a ton to do. And even for me, as I with my show, you know, obviously I'm not approaching it on an academic level, but in an anecdotal level, um, mm-hmm. aspects of my show can be very useful to other people um, in, their, in, in the future of knowing just like there are some things that are some through lines across no matter what our ethnic heritage is and, and yeah. also no matter what our cultural access is. A lot mm-hmm. of us experience very similar things and we have a lot of things in common. That being said, mm-hmm depending on our ethnicity, depending on our culture, depending on our cultural access, depending on what country we're in, we may not react or behave the same. And so you do have to kind of decide at one point, this is the area that mm-hmm. I'm sort of focusing my energy on. Mm-hmm. But um, if we don't do this, then they continue to have permission to not acknowledge and 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 behave as if it's not valid and i can tell you if you ever need these moments of like reinvigoration because i imagine the work can be very daunting and like 
soul sucking at times is that you can always hit me up and I can remind you of individual <laughs> stories that people have told me about why it's important that we need to, you know, that people know we exist and, and, and know the tolls it takes on our mental health, yeah. on our ability to get jobs on our, you know, I mean, yeah. Looking the way that I look, but having a name like I have Charmaine Latrice has been challenging to get certain positions. And yet once I'm mm-hmm. in a position, I usually rise up pretty quickly because of the kind of work that I do. And then I will instantly be smacked down by being told I'm a credit to either black folks or Asian folks because, you know, because of the work that I do and something, like yeah. so, you know, like every day is a challenge. Um, but I know that this stuff is important to, to, to all of us um, for, for that validity, but also for whatever resources that we might not have access to now because people don't realize we need these uh, resources. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate the work you do. I know, I know it's done. Thank you. I mean, even on a, like a non-academic approach, sometimes militantly mix can be very daunting and I take hiatuses, you know, I have to yeah. just to kind of repair. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That being said, the process is also very therapeutic because of what I learned. So when we talk about it, it's complicated. It, it literally can go like the one incident can both be the worst thing ever and the best thing. Yeah. Ever, for whatever it is. Yeah. So I, I mean, I've found that like talking to people, talking to actual people, actual like mixed people makes it worthwhile and then it's when you get sucked into these like the academic articles and like the lack of like knowledge, lack of support, like yeah I've got a lot of thoughts about academia (laughs) but um I guess that's a that's a topic of conversation for another day (laughs) um before we we wrap up I do like to ask all all of my guests because sometimes it is a challenge to talk about what we experience um what do you love most about being mixed hmm I think that there's a lot of flexibility. I think that there's a lot of flexibility, a lot of ways to connect with people. Um, You know, there are challenges to be mixed, but there it can it's an asset as well. So I know that um, I speak fluent Spanish. Like that has been incredibly helpful for you know my my job as an immigration paralegal and like general use and like just my everyday life. And if I wasn't mixed, I like wouldn't have that that language skill. Um, and I think that that to me is is one of the most important things about me being able to say that, you know, I'm Latina. Sure, I'm Asian, but I'm I'm Latina. And like that to me is, is at the core of like my identity. And so I love being able to have I mean, everybody has layers to their identity, of course. But there's it just feels like a more rich experience. Like I get to do traditions I get to you know eat different foods I got to to go to Japan and travel and like have relatives in in Chile and Mexico it's so it's like it's a lot more of a global and open kind of view of the world Mm -hmm. so I appreciate you know the, the fact that since I was little like I have a very kind of broad and global understanding of the world because I didn't grow up in a little neighborhood with just white people or you know so it's, I think that to me is like one of the most important things because it's so hard to teach, right? It's so hard to teach that like the world is vast and, no, you know, people don't look like you, but you should still respect them. Right. Like this shouldn't be, um, yeah, but that's, that's kind of mine. 
my yeah. my favorite thing. Um, I don't have this as a regular question that I ask every single person, but every now and then I'm, I super want to know, do you have any hybrid foods that you've managed to piece together between your multiple cultures into one dish? Mm. So or Venezuelans have this is thing. Is there a oh. dish that makes you feel like it's speaking to both I guess, or everything, I guess, is okay. the way of asking the question. Sorry. <laughs> No worries, no worries. Okay, so Venezuelans have this food called an arepa, which is basically like one of the best foods in the world. Um, you can put, it's like made out of like corn flour and you can fry it, you can grill it and you can put whatever you want inside. You can put cheese, you can put eggs, you can put, you know, like pork, plantains, whatever you want. And so I remember one time I also put, I had an arepa and I had um, like pork katsu, you know, Japanese like um, fried pork cutlet. And I was like, what if I, what if I put them together and with the little sauce the Japanese sauce and I, it was, you know, it was glorious. <laughs> it was, it was amazing. And like, and like, even my dad does this, he'll like put seaweed paste in there. And it's like, it, I think Venezuelan culture facilitates hybridity like that. And I think that I'm very, I'm very thankful for that. That's awesome. And I definitely want to try that. Um, that sounds delicious. Uh, I honestly just eating my way through mixedness is, is also, um, a goal. <laughs> whatever I find out, whatever someone's foods are that are great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and, and also the communication that we have had during the summer, because my hiatus and me moving around and everything like that, that we were able to connect. I really do appreciate you. And it was a pleasure. Yeah. Story with everybody as well. Thank you. you. Yeah. Um, I mean, this was really fun. I, you're doing super important work and um, you know, keep, keep doing it for the mix folks. Cause like nobody else is going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Someone's (laughs) texting. Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Fury. Music is by David Bogan, the one you can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Militantly Mixed. If you'd like to become a sponsor of Militantly Mixed, please go to patreon.com slash militantly mixed for monthly sponsorship or paypal.me slash militantly mixed for a one-time only donation. And if you like what you hear on Militantly Mixed, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to be your mixed-ass self. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.